Welcome to this podcast, one of a series coming from the WOW Women of the World Festival 2017 at London's Southbank Centre. In this podcast, Jude Kelly, Artistic Director of Southbank Centre and founder of the WOW Festival, interviews legendary African-American writer, scholar, teacher and activist organiser Angela Davis. I want to take the opportunity just to read from a piece by Cornel West about Angela that he wrote as a preface for this book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Angela Davis is one of the few great long-distance intellectual freedom fighters in the world. From the revolutionary mass movements of the 1960s to the insurgent social motion in our day, Angela Davis has remained steadfast in her focus on the wretched of the earth. In stark contrast to most leftists in the academy, her structural analysis and courageous practice have come at a tremendous cost in her life and in her well-being. As a new assistant professor of philosophy, she was demonized by Governor Ronald Reagan in California. The University of California Board of Regents stripped her of her academic position owing to her membership of the Communist Party. She was put at the top of FBI's most wanted list, on the run from the police forces of the US empire and incarcerated after her capture. Her grace and dignity during a historic court trial electrified the world. And her determination to remain true to her revolutionary vocation in the intense international spotlight has been an inspiration. After the systematic state execution or incarceration of black warriors and government incorporation of black professionals, Angela Davis still stands tall with intellectual power and moral fervor. During the 30-year ice age of neoliberal rule, Angela Davis remained on fire for the freedom of the poor and working people. Her scholarship on women, workers, and people of color helped keep alive a radical vision, analysis, and practice during the Reagan and Bush years. Her pioneering intellectual and political work on the boomtown growth of the prison system helped set the foundations for the age of Ferguson. And her ubiquitous lecturing, marvelous teaching, and courageous solidarity in every corner of the globe keep candles of hope burning in the cold and chilling days of neoliberal hegemony. She remains after more than 50 years of struggle, suffering, and service, the most recognizable face of the left in the US empire. But of course, we know that her boundaries stretch much, much further than the US empire, because we wanted her to come here to WOW at this point in time, and she's here for us today, Angela Davis. One of the things that in this book you say uh, when you were, I think, looking at the Washington Monument one day, you said, how do you address the contradiction of progress and regression at the same time? And we were reflecting about the incredible change to many rights that have happened. And yet at the same time, here we are in a situation where we have Trump elected, a very, very great set of schisms across the world and a huge amount of, of, of turbulence that suggests that actually we haven't got 
a consolidated sense that we want to fight for human justice all together. And I was wondering, now that this election has happened, what you think needs to happen in terms of conversations, not just in America, but the rest of the world. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, first of all, um, the election of Donald Trump uh, uh, has created a disaster. You know, I've said many times that my um, two-year-old grandniece couldn't understand what was happening. And she said, has Donald Duck been elected our president? <laughs> and I always say, out of the mouths of babes, right? <laughs> but of course, as... Um, as much as we work to prevent the election of Donald Trump, and I say to prevent the election of Donald Trump because I, I don't uh, mean to argue that had Hillary Clinton been elected, we would have been in a substantially different situation. Uh, The difference, it seems to me, uh, would have been that we would have had more room, more space to do the organizing uh, we need to do during this period. But at the same time, when Trump was elected, people began to respond in um, amazing ways. Uh, I, myself, as someone who has been involved in activism literally all of my life. Uh, I've never experienced, even during the height of radical movements in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of mandate for resistance that uh, uh, people are producing these days. Uh, mm -hmm. So yes, on that day when I visited the MLK Memorial, which incidentally was on the occasion of the second inauguration uh, of Barack Obama, um, after, um, after a counter inaugural event, after a, a ball that was called a Peace Ball Voices of Resistance, uh, uh, and if on that occasion it was appropriate to reflect upon, uh, to reflect on the regression that, uh, as well as the progress, uh, I think that now we, mm -hmm. we need to keep those things in tension even uh, more than ever before. And I'll, I'll conclude by saying oftentimes people People ask me whether I am uh, disturbed or depressed that the same issues keep coming up uh, over and over again. And you know, oftentimes people say, you've devoted your life to this movement. And how does it make you feel when you see that nothing has really changed? And it is true that in, in many ways, structurally, racism is more powerful than ever before. But I always have to make the point that things have changed. And if we don't acknowledge that conditions have changed, what we're saying is that the work that we do 
uh, makes no difference at all. And what is different, it seems to me, is um, the fact that young activists have uh, more profound ways of thinking about you know, how we move in the direction of freedom. Uh, uh, the conceptual tools uh, that young people have today are based on the decades and decades of, of struggle. Uh, and so yes, we have made progress. Yeah. We have made progress. I'm glad you said that, uh, because I think, again, you, you know, in the book you talked about the fact that in a sense one has a duty to be optimistic, you know, almost like it is part of the nature of activism to be optimistic, even if there are pessimistic circumstances. But you talked about racism, and in the book, again, you say it's actually one of the most difficult conversations to have. And you quote a moment when Obama says, well, actually, we've had enough conversations about it, and we ought to take action. And, and you say, well, actually, we do need to talk a great deal more. We have to know how to meaningfully talk about racism, or our actions will move in misleading directions. And I'd, I'd like to talk about that, because certainly at WOW, we are trying to understand how to meaningfully discuss racism, and all areas of inequality, so that we don't fall into the inevitable complacency of thinking that gender equality is basically keeping the same world, but with, with women, white women, standing in the place of white men. Because that's not a world that would reflect change of values. But acknowledging that conversations about race are hard, and yet that they need to be done. Can you talk a little bit about good practice in this area, how does one start? How does one make it possible for people to start talking about race together? Well, these conversations never take place abstractly. And you know, there are those who are always calling upon um, uh, people to participate in a conversation on race. Uh, and it's my opinion that the most effective uh, conversations take place within uh, the context of activism, within the context, within a context of trying to transform um, the world. Um, you were talking about uh, the, the problems of uh, assuming that feminism uh, calls for a kind of replacing of men by women or and we were talking about the fact that somehow or another, we always use um, as our standard those who are at the center of the structures we want to dismantle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so why would women want to become equal to men? You know, why would black people and Latinos and, and, and Arabs and Muslims want to become equal to white people. <laughs> you know, why would the LGBTQ community want to become 
equal in the context of heteropatriarchy. And I mean, it's so interesting that, you know, somehow we get pulled into uh, these, um, these contradictions that make very little sense. Contradictions can be very uh, productive, uh, mind me. I'm not saying shy away from contradictions. Uh, but what I am uh, suggesting is that we have to be aware of the extent to which assimilationalism always tends to reign. Uh, you solve racism by integrating black people and people of color into a white supremacist society without thinking about what it is we need to do in order to transform that society. And I think that, um, that maybe now we're finally beginning to get it. I hope we are. Uh, but I'm very, um, I'm very optimistic, let me use the term that you used, and of course I often, uh, you know, uh, borrow Antonio Gramsci's notion of, uh, of pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. Uh, yes, we always have to believe that ultimately we will be able to change the world. And I say ultimately, because this is not um, a, a context within which we're going to immediately uh, witness the consequences of the work we do. And I think that today, in 2017, as we uh, try to generate uh, powerful resistance movements, uh, uh, against Islamophobia, to protect undocumented uh, immigrants, uh, uh, to protect the rights of, of, of trans people, that we're drawing upon um, forces and we're drawing upon energies that have been created over decades. Uh, so now we're, in, in a sense, reaping the fruits of the work that people, activists, uh, like ourselves, and I hope that uh, the fact that there's so many people in the audience means that there are many people who identify as activists, am I right? Yes. Yeah, just, just as we're creating the terrain for something that, that uh, may happen 50 years from now, and, and, you know, oftentimes when I say this, people become depressed because they're saying, well, you know, maybe I won't be around 50 years from now. But so what? <laughs> you know, what difference does that make? You know, capitalism forces us and the neoliberal ideologies you were mm -hmm. talking about compel us to measure uh, the world in a very small way. We cannot measure the work that we're doing uh, by our own um, selves, our own individual selves, and by, even by our own lifetimes. Uh, because I like to think that, that today we're living the imaginaries of those who have been long gone. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're living the world, they want it. And therefore we, can't expect that others will be inhabiting 
a world that we imagine, maybe not in terms of the specificity, uh, uh, but inhabiting a very new world that is impossible if we do not uh, engage in the kind of activism that is required today. Uh, some of the wows that we do, uh, in particular one that matters a lot, is the, the wow in Catherine, which is the Aboriginal community who've done wows for the last four years. And when I first went to those wows, and obviously they talk always about the ancestors, their ancestors, and they speak of that as, a, as an absolute reality. And I remember initially uh, respecting and then suddenly identifying in the way that you've just said, which is that women who've been before and men who've been before, we, we stand on their shoulders, we live with the rights that they imagined. Uh, and we were talking earlier about imagining a world that we can't yet touch or feel at all because it's like a fourth dimension. It's not a matriarchy. It's not something that used to exist. It's a different kind of space altogether that doesn't replicate what we've already got with, with, with the, the furniture rearranged. Um, and we look to history to some extent to teach us about the future. We were talking earlier about this phrase intersectionality which is sort of something that people are now grappling with. Some understand it deeply, some have lived it deeply, some are understanding it for the first time and trying to work out their responsibility within it. But it, it's not new. It's something which history has explored and you indeed wrote about in the 60s and the 70s. Why do you think, even though it's been analyzed so clearly 50 years ago, it's it surfaced now as something which people are prepared to discuss. Well, first of all, uh, let me say that I really appreciate, uh, Jude, the fact that you brought up uh, the cosmologies of indigenous people, uh, because I think that uh, we have a great deal to learn uh, uh, from uh, uh, those ways of, of, of thinking about the world, those ways of bringing the past and present and future uh, together. Mm -hmm. I was, um, you know, Winona LaDuke, uh, who's a, a, a really amazing uh, Native American uh, activist, uh, uh, points out that um, in indigenous terms, five generations is not a very long time. And so we have to think in terms of, of generations. Uh, um, intersectionality. Um, I don't think it was clearly analyzed 50 years ago. I don't think it's been clearly analyzed in the 21st century. As a matter of fact, I like to point out that um, that the impulse, the impulse for thinking about what we now know as intersectionality mm -hmm. uh, um, is an activist impulse. So, uh, because if one looks at the, the struggles in the 1960s, early 1970s, uh, around the time when I was in jail, as a matter of fact, we were, yeah, <laughs> when I was in, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
You know, I'm sorry, I sort of <laughs> casually talk about the fact that I was, was in jail. And, 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 and what I can say now is that that was such a difficult period in my life, but now I see it as a gift because I learned so much and so much of who I am uh, uh, emanated from that experience of, 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 of being imprisoned. Uh, but, um, but I can remember when we were trying to figure out, you know, how, how do women of color assert ourselves in the women's movement that was emerging? And as I've pointed out many times, I was often the um, target of a question that went something like this. Uh, well, you know, what are you anyway? Are you black or are you a woman? <laughs> and of course, there was that wonderful anthology. Um, you know, all of the, the women are white. All of the blacks are men, but some of us are brave. And I think that bravery is beginning to rise. Uh, um, and, and so there were so many ways that activists and scholars and scholar activists were attempting to figure out how to think these issues together, how to develop activist strategies, organizing strategies that attended to the interrelationships of gender and, and, and race and class and sexuality. And many terms were used. Uh, 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 the whole notion of, of double jeopardy uh, uh, was used um, uh, early on to be black and female, uh, uh, an article that appeared in one of the first women's liberation anthologies. Uh, uh, by Fran Beale, and then, then also uh, Triple Jeopardy, which became the title of a newspaper that was uh, associated with an organization called Third World Women's Alliance. Uh, and the uh, Triple Jeopardy was um, imperialism. This was the era of the Vietnam War. Um, racism and sexism. And, and I, I could actually do a lecture for the next hour about the, uh, the genealogy of the term intersectionality, but intersectionality is just one of the most recent concepts that emerged to attempt to approximate the ways in which these um, modes of oppression, these categories come together in reality, in social reality. Unfortunately, many academics think that the terms we use in academic languages uh, coincide exactly with the social world. But I think that what we do, what we're doing is we're trying to find ways to give expression to the social reality that always exceeds our ability to find concepts. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of um, sad that, that intersectionality, uh, Kimberly uh, Crenshaw, who's you know, an amazing uh, uh, a legal scholar, she coined the term intersectionality and we seem 
satisfied with it. And we're not continuing to, um, this, to find other ways to talk about the messiness, the, the interconnectedness, the cross-hatched uh, character of, of, of this. I think that mm -hmm. we have to continue yeah. because we haven't yet, we haven't yet figured it out. Okay, that's, that's great. I mean, I think that urging on, I mean, and that does really relate to that phrase, and some of us are brave, doesn't it? Because actually, the hard thing, the brave thing, I mean, speaking as a 62-year-old white short woman, you know, there's only so much knowledge I've got. And, but I can tell you what it's like to be me. And when you are standing in a place of power, which I do, because I, I'm the South Bank Centre's artistic director, and I founded WOW, then the amount of knowledge that I don't know becomes really, you know, huge, huge, uh, relative to the influence one can have. And the, therefore, you rely enormously on the generosity of bravery all round, um, mainly other peoples, to kind of keep the conversation moving forward. Um, we had a very powerful wow uh, in Baltimore recently, and it was um, at a time, you know, you know Baltimore is a, a community very stricken by its divisions. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, when we were doing the WOW Festival, uh, women of color, uh, white women, were kind of saying, we actually can't talk to each other, we, we can't talk to each other. And we were saying, well, you can't do WOW unless those conversations are gonna have, be had, I'm afraid. We're just not gonna do that. So in the end, actually, we had a, a tremendous wow because people did have courage but one of the sessions was I basically I can't remember it was, a bit of the, it was more or less um, I'm tired of telling white women what it's like to be black they can go and learn for themselves <laughs> you know and you thought fair dues fair dues because you know I've often felt like that with men where they say well can't you explain feminism to me again and you say no actually I can't um, <laughs> But, but I'd like to know, you know, where do you think the, the black feminist movement, because actually, even actually in Baltimore, the, 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 some of those women were saying, we're not going to use the word feminist either. It's not a word we want to use. We'll use sisterhood, but not feminism, because, you know, it's been purloined and owned by, by white women, by middle-class women. So it's, it's important. Uh, and, and, and actually, just, you know, not to hold on to this conversation too long, but the, the, the wows in other parts of the world, like Karachi or Somaliland, as we've done, you know, feminism isn't a word that is instantly transferable because it is often associated with the group who have it and the group who haven't had it yet or can't have it on those terms. So I don't know, what, what, where do you feel that, you know, we can learn as women from the black feminist investigation? Well... Of course, um, the category women uh, is so internally racialized. Uh, so we have to begin there and, and ask ourselves, well, you know, who are we talking about when we say women? And, and it seems to me that we will have um, finally made some progress if women who have always been marginalized from the general category women, which has been about white middle-class women, uh, if 
um, those who have had to struggle can become the, um, the sign of that category. And what would, what would it be like to have, say, a black trans woman who has been involved in, in struggles against violence, struggles against um, the prison industrial complex, mm. What would it be like for that woman to stand in as the sign of the category? Women. You know, as I was saying before, we always assume that those who are um, already privileged are the ones who become the standard. And why can't we assume that those who have had to struggle to be recognized, to struggle for recognition, to struggle for um, survival, to struggle for freedom, why cannot they become uh, the, the, the sign of what we should strive for? And so it's in, it's in that context. You know, I'm someone who, uh, after, I first, after I wrote the, the, this book in, um, I think it was published in 1981, and it was it's called Women, Race, and Class. Um, but um, uh, I realized that, that I was being called a feminist then. And, and my response then was, uh, I'm not a feminist. You know, I'm a revolutionary black woman. <laughs> but, but, but over the years, black women, women of color have redefined the project of feminism. So the feminism that is on the rise today is, to use the word we were talking about before, is an intersectional feminism. It's not, it's not a carceral feminism. It's not a glass ceiling feminism. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that someone like Hillary Clinton should have been insightful enough to recognize that metaphors really matter. You know, metaphors matter. And she constantly deployed the metaphor of penetrating the glass ceiling. Well, who's going to be in a position to penetrate the glass ceiling, to break through the glass ceiling, if not those who are already on top? And as... Um, as my uh, friend uh, Michael Bennett, who's a uh, black football player for the uh, Seattle Seahawks, uh, who just uh, recently refused to uh, participate in a delegation to Israel. Uh, and he also released a really powerful statement on International Women's Day supporting the strike, so you can find it online. Uh, but, but he, he said uh, that, that, that he stands 
not with those women who are trying to break the glass ceiling, but with those uh, for whom the floor underneath them is constantly collapsing. <laughs> Metaphors really matter. Okay, I've got two short questions and then you can be preparing yours. One is about men. Okay. So, um, that could take a long time, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I think, you know, it's a very important thing that we have talked a lot. I mean, I started this festival being a man three years ago. People kind of went, what do you mean, being a man? They've got a festival all the time. But actually, unless one addresses the issue of masculinity and the idea of toxic masculinity and the, the confines of masculinity, then I don't know myself how we can move conversations on. But you say that actually, Feminism doesn't belong to anyone in particular. Feminism is not a unitary phenomenon. And so it's increasing there are men involved in feminist studies. I mean, and you talk about the fact that women have got to invite men to the struggle. And obviously, this is something which not all women feel comfortable with. Uh, and men appear to be reticent on. Well, I don't know if I said women should invite men into the struggle. Did I say that? Yeah, you did, but it's okay. Okay, well, that's okay. What, I'm, what, what, what I should have said... <laughs> See, this is why I don't read my own work. Because <laughs> I find too many points of disagreement. <laughs> did I really say that? Well, actually, you know, you say both men and women and trans persons have to do the work, right? Uh -huh. But it's important to invite men to the struggle. But I did... Okay. But there's a certain kind of... Right. Well, anyway, l l let me tell you how I would... Um, the responsible men have to No, let me aware. tell you how I, I would formulate it. Uh, um, I, because I think men, progressive men, need to take the initiative themselves. They don't need to be invited because... Now, so many, so many of the issues we construct as women's issues, mm -hmm. um, domestic violence, intimate violence, sexual violence, gender violence, uh, they are by and large men's problems. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting when the the, the um, anti-violence movement emerged in the 70s. Um, I kept thinking that uh, soon there will be a wave of, of, of men, um, radical men organizing other men against violence, against gender violence, against violence against women, against violence against trans women. And it happened to a certain extent in a few places, mm -hmm. but for some reason it never, it never caught on in the way it should have. And I think this is perhaps uh, the moment uh, when, and I see this in the context of the um, uh, feminist uh, approaches of Black Lives Matter and other movements that young men are beginning to recognize that um, feminist methodology uh, is going to allow us to move through and 
um, begin to push uh, some of these questions in ways that they have never uh, been pushed uh, in the past. And I, and I think that the anti-violence movement, which is an amazing movement, and it, it, it has been, what, some 50 years? And there are all kinds of uh, uh, organizations and agencies and committees and strategies and approaches all over the world. And I think we have to applaud that. We do have to applaud that. But at the same time, the incidents of violence against women, and when I say women, I'm, I'm trying to be inclusive and I'm including trans women here, that violence, the incidence of violence against women remains the same. Mm -hmm. So there's something we are not doing. And I think that we shouldn't be relying on uh, punitive uh, methods. Uh, many people assume that, that what you do is you, uh, you know, throw the person in prison. You criminalize uh, domestic violence or intimate violence and sexual violence and you throw people in prison and then the work is done. Uh, but of course, uh, we, so many of us know that um, uh, these, method, these methods of incarceration are designed not to solve the problems, but rather to make us forget about the fact that we have to engage so much more deeply with these issues. Uh, when people go to prison, when people go to prison, the problem is forgotten. And because violence, especially sexual violence, uh, is, is so hard um, to confront, to even think about, uh, we find ourselves uh, uh, very easily capitulating to what uh, appears to be the only available solution. Just, you know, put them in prison. The more we put them in prison, the more violent they become. And the problem becomes reproduced and exacerbated. So I guess I'm saying that um, as an abolitionist, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and I, um, I like to, we were talking about feminism. Uh, the feminism I um, identify with is I think I would call it abolition feminism. Abolition feminism, which is an anti-racist uh, feminism, anti-capitalist feminism, uh, uh, intersectional feminism, uh, all of that. Um, and, and so it means that we're going to have to do a great deal more. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think that um, uh, the younger generation is, taking up these issues. I had a wonderful meeting with a, a group, a small group of about 10 or 12 uh, uh, young people associated with uh, uh, Black Lives Matter earlier today, this morning. <laughs> um, and, and, and one of the, uh, one of the participants in the conversation was talking about uh, uh, how important it is uh, 
for more experienced activists to, to acknowledge young people. Uh, and I had to say, well, uh, I totally agree with you, but from where I stand, all of you look really young. <laughs> you know, but I do think that uh, uh, um, her point was really important. It's the, it's the younger generation that um, not only benefits from all of the experience and the knowledge that we've been able to produce over time, over years, over generations, but it's also um, the capacity to imagine something different, something new, mm -hmm. something does, that does not replicate the past. Uh, and oftentimes we assume that all we have to do is find out, you know, what the, you know, what the, the famous activists of the past did. And we have the answer, but that's not going to solve the problem. Because those of us whose experiences are connected with the past have not been able to extricate ourselves from some ideas uh, that, um, that are often very regressive. Mm -hmm. And I include myself. This is why I think the most important learning I do at this age in my life is learning from young people. There's so much we could cover, but it's important to now take questions. One thing I would like to say is that because so much of Angela's work is looking at prisons, the violence of prisons, and we in this country have the second biggest prison population, the first biggest prison population in Europe, and there is some mirroring going on. For those of you who don't know enough about that area of work, I would urge you to read Angela's writing on this subject, because this is a, an, another whole territory of work, which is, which is absolutely pioneering and crucial. But I would like to now come to questions. So if you want to put the lights up even further, that would help. And uh, I, I'm going to rely on the hosts to find the people who want to, you know, okay. Uh, so could you put your hand up if you'd like to ask a question, please? Um, it's a kind of bit of a host, and could, you, could you just do a lot of running around. Yes, there's somebody up there. Thank you. <laughs> and you'll have to wave or, and stand. You've got lights, yes? So I'm going to take three questions at this one time. Yep. Like, who's got the microphone? Yes, thank you. Woo! Right. Angela, it is a great honour to hear you speak again. I'm so humbled. Um, thank you. Um, so my name is Sienna and I did a workshop earlier about anger, about reimagining anger and self-care. And what I want to ask you is this con about the concept of anger. And I'm really interested in the notion of anger being a transformative emotion. Obviously, we understand it to be quite negative, but how can we make anger something that we use um, and turn into a productive energy and the impetus for change that we need? Thank so, you. it's my question. Okay, so the next question, please. Thank you. Okay, so first thing I want to do is to just so bow to you, Angela. Here yeah, I am. There. Here I am. Here I am. I just want to bow to you and say thank you so much for the struggles that you took on board for us women. And I also want to say thank you for organizing WOW and giving an opportunity for women to come together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you. Um, for so long, we've been, as women, thinking about the things that we have struggled with. And I feel that we need to start looking in a different way. And I think that we need to start looking at what are they afraid of? What is it that we have as women that, we, that others are afraid of? Why do we get raped? What are they stealing from us when they rape us? What are they stealing from us when they say, you're not good enough for that? What are they stealing from us when they silence us? And actually, we need to look at the power we have as women because that is the thing that is actually our potency. And I've been talking about potency today because we have a lot of potency. And I think we need circles like these to get together and start talking about that. It's not to say the other stuff isn't important, but this is part of the new stuff we need to start talking about. Great, thank, thank you. you. And there's what, somebody back there, yes. Is there a microphone right back there? Hi, I'm June, Eric Dory, I'm 18. Um, and I wanted to say, um, to me, Miss Davis, you're kind of like a real kind of beacon and example of a black woman who really knows who she is and knows her power as well. So um, the thing I like, I'm outwardly quite confident, like I do a lot of writing and activism, but I think like, especially from working now in a very, very white female dominated field, um, I felt, quite overwhelmed and like just finding it quite hard not to lose sense of myself and I know you probably get asked a lot like what um, the message you would give to young black women who are trying to growing up and trying to navigate the world now but I think you learn that but I think the question I'd like to ask you is what's the thing that you know now kind of reflecting on your youth that you wish you knew um, as a young black woman that you feel that is really important for us to know? All right, so should I try to address the three questions that I'm going to attempt to be as succinct as possible because I'm really enthusiastic about hearing as much from you and the audience as the time constraints will allow. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, anger can be a powerful force. Uh, uh, and. Um, you know, I like Audre Lorde's uh, uh, way of addressing the uses of anger. And at the same time, I would, would say that we have to beware, however, uh, that we are not self-destructive in the expression of that anger. Uh, because sometimes it turns inward. Uh, uh, so I, I like to think about uh, politics of anger and and how to uh, harness it so that we can use it as a transformative force. And I would say uh, the same thing in response to the second uh, question about uh, the potency of women. And I think I would say that you know I don't I don't believe in um, 
natural powers. Um, and I don't know whether we can say that uh, uh, women naturally have this power. I think it's a product of uh, the historical contributions. Women have done most of the work when we talk about building movements that have transformed our world for centuries. And uh, Jude and I were, were talking about a point that I often make about the uh, extent to which what we know as the US civil rights movement, the mid 20th century civil rights movement that is almost inevitably represented by Dr. Martin Luther King, right? Uh, uh, you know, maybe you hear uh, about Rosa Parks, but you don't recognize that it was poor black women Domestic workers who were the ones who were compelled who were compelled to ride the bus. And so I like to think that we are where we are today because those poor black women, uh, maids and cooks and washerwomen had this collective uh, dream of a different world. And they acted on that dream. And that is why the Montgomery bus boycott became successful. That is why Dr. King was able to emerge as the representative of those, of that movement. And I think that if we look at every uh, move, mass movement, progressive mass movement, we will see that it's women who are doing the work. Women who have enabled this. And I think, you know, the, the men in the audience should stand up and applaud. <laughs> stand up and applaud. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when we say that the future belongs to women, it's not, as we were saying before, about taking over the leadership positions of men. It's about transforming the very structure of that leadership. And, you know, what is important now is that we don't see the emergence of, of um, uh, masculinist, individualist, uh, um, uh, charismatic leaders. We see, we see a collective leadership. We see black women, we see black queer women who are taking leadership in the movement and doing it in a very different way. And I think that insistence, that feminist insistence on collectivity uh, is what uh, marks the fact that we have the potential for moving in the direction of a very different future. This is what it means to say that women represent the future.
Um, and the last question, the, the last question, you know, uh, yeah, the, the, the question about what I would, uh, what, what uh, I wish I had known. Um, you know, I don't know whether I wish I had known anything that I know now. Because, you know, I think if, if, if I had known, then I wouldn't have been willing to take risk and to use my imagination. And I think we learn as much from making mistakes and sometimes even more from making mistakes. And I always point out that um, it's not that uh, young people, younger generations shouldn't be allowed to make mistakes. Uh, it's just that they shouldn't have to make the same mistakes that we made. They should make new mistakes. But you should also know, I said I was going to try to be succinct, but uh, I, I do have to say this. Uh, um, you know, it's completely um, accidental that I ended up where I am. Uh, you know, I, it, was a, it was an accident of history. Uh, and, you know, I, it, it, it just so happened that I got targeted because of my politics, I was no different from anyone else. And all I've done over you know, all of these years is to try to use the arena that was created by the fact that uh, I was targeted by Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon, who was president, and J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI. Uh, and, you know, I was in a situation back then where even though people believed that I was innocent, their response was, there is no way you are going to be able to uh, win uh, up against the most powerful men in the world. And I was charged with, I said I was in jail, but I didn't tell you that I was charged with three capital crimes. I was charged with murder, kidnapping, and conspiracy, each one of which carried the death penalty. Uh, um, and and the, the only reason I think it's important for people to remember anything about me, because I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm just, you know, just another person. That's all I am. Just another person who has tried her best over the years to make whatever contributions I'm capable of making to the struggle for freedom. That's all I am. But what is important to remember is that when people all over the world join the movement to save my life, they demonstrate the millions of people, Europe, Africa, Asia, uh, Latin America, the Middle East, the US, uh, uh, they demonstrated that if we come together, if we unite, we can achieve the impossible. And that's the lesson that I symbolize. Okay, okay. yes. Uh, Hello, I'm Macy and I actually work with young people 
um, especially young women who are leaving prison. What do you say or what advice could you give me supporting young people, especially young women, leaving prison, as a lot of them have self-hate and hate themselves? Okay, thank you, Macy. I've got another, anybody else? Who, where else? Who's got the microphone? Hi, Angela. Firstly, thank you for your time and what, your wisdom tonight. What, what, it's been really insightful. What, um, I know you're quite vocal and um, quite involved in the Palestinian struggle. There, I just wanted to know what drew you to that struggle and what similarities there are between the struggles you've had um, with the civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement and the Palestinian struggle today. Okay, and let's take this third question down here, please. Yes, hi. Um, I am so honoured to meet my hero. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of everybody here. I am an activist and I campaign on the issues of deaths in police custody. I heard all what you said, but I would like to ask you personally, what gives you the strength to keep going? I know we cannot give up. But what would you tell me so that I can keep going, as certainly as long as you have, to fight on the issues of destiny custody for my people and this country? Um, the, the, the first question, um, how to support uh, women in prison. And I think it's a really important question. Uh, people often assume that uh, because all over the world, men constitute the majority of prisoners, that it's a male issue. And, you know, as I was saying this morning with, uh, to the, the, the group of uh, young people from Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, feminism is, um, is not just about gender. You know, it's certainly not just about women, but it's also not just about gender. I, I see feminism as a methodology, as an approach, uh, as a way to, um, to think about issues, as a way to, as a particular methodology of organizing, placing intersectionality of what we call intersectionality at the, the center. And so it means that oftentimes um, what are considered to be uh, minor issues, uh, marginal issues, minoritized issues, are the issues that are most important to give us a sense of the way of the structure as a whole functions. And so while women constitute five, seven, ten percent at the most of the uh, uh, prison populations um, throughout the world, and I, I just, I need to say though that one-third of all women in prison are in prison in the United States of America. Uh, yeah, this is why we call the U.S. a carceral nation. Uh, um, but if one, if one looks at the ways in which we can um, think about the conjunction of um, state violence and intimate violence, based on women's experiences. And I say this because we've learned a lot of this from women prisoners. And uh, for those who are students or academics, uh, 
You, you cannot assume that all important knowledge gets produced within the context of universities. And so I'll never forget, I'll never forget the insight that came from uh, uh, women prisoners who said that the violence I experience inside prison feels exactly like the violence I experienced as a target of intimate abuse or domestic violence. And so that notion of the intersectionality, the interconnectedness of state violence or institutional violence on the one hand and intimate violence or individual violence on the other hand came as a result of the insights of, of, of women in prison. You know, I was also uh, saying this this morning that some years ago when trans prisoners began to uh, argue that the movement as a whole, the, the movement against the prison industrial complex had to take up the issue of the rights of trans prisoners. Um, we did not realize then, this was quite many, many years ago. You know, it takes a while for these issues to uh, uh, emerge uh, uh, in ways that allow us to um, uh, develop a discourse, a popular discourse of, about them. Uh, but I can, I, can, uh, I can remember when we, we, we began to say, or uh, the insights came from uh, trans uh, people in prison, especially trans women in prison, who um, began to talk about the way the institution as a whole is a gendering apparatus. So it's not just a question of having to protect the rights of a relatively small population. It's a question of recognizing how the prison helps to consolidate uh, a gender binarism, uh, you know, how it, the ideological work that it does on everyone in the society. So you see, you start with what appears to be a, a relatively small issue and it transforms the way you think about your theory and your practice of prison abolition. So it means that prison abolition is also the abolition of gender policing. And so, and so I think that, that, that we don't approach women in prison as a, as a needy population that needs to be helped by missionaries or charitable forces. Uh, but we try to create egalitarian relationships and recognizing that, that we have as much to learn from the experiences of, 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 of women, um, uh, trans and cis, who, have, who, who know in their bodies what it means to be incarcerated as we have to offer in the way of solidarity. Palestine, Palestine, thank you so much for raising, uh, uh, yeah, I see you, 
uh, right there. Uh, uh, you ask how I became involved in uh, Palestine solidarity. Um, I, actually, my story is, is really interesting uh, because I went to a Jewish university. I went to Brandeis University, uh, graduated in 1965, and the first Palestine solidarity work I did was during my time as an undergraduate at Brandeis. And I always point out that I actually learned from my um, Jewish uh, friends at Brandeis the importance of doing uh, Palestine solidarity work. So whenever, whenever people talk about anti-Semitism, I say, no, that is not what it is about at all. As a matter of fact, that the work for justice against Palestine is the best way to challenge anti-Semitism and Islamophobia alike. Um, and I think that it was so important that the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the movement for black lives, uh, took up the, the, the question of Palestine solidarity because, um, because, you know, black people in the U.S. can be really um, U.S.-centric. You know? And, and I think we've gotten so used to being the people who are helped by solidarity efforts all over the world. And this has been going on for centuries, right? I was just in, in Northern Ireland and we were talking about the fact that uh, Frederick Douglass traveled to Ireland to generate, to help generate solidarity. Well, um, it's about time that uh, black people in the U.S. learned how to offer solidarity. And Palestine has been so helpful in building an abolitionist movement uh, and, 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 and moving away, and I think this has to do with the question, with your comments about deaths and custody, moving away from the individualized uh, uh, approach that only wants to see the individual perpetrator of the crime, the murder, or whatever it is, uh, are brought to justice. Uh, we can continue to do that for eons, and the structures will remain. The racist structures of state violence will remain. And so Palestine taught us um, that we had to be more attentive, you know, first of all, to the connection between the current uh, uh, production of anti-black racism and Islamophobia. And we had to, we have to recognize that, that it is perhaps more important uh, than ever before to stand up against Islamophobia because Islamophobia is the most violent expression of racism today. Recognizing, of course, recognizing, of course, that women are the first targets of Islamophobia all over the world. But the point I also wanted to make is that 
we recognize that movements against police violence, against uh, uh, prison violence, uh, are not are not only about dealing with uh, those modes of violence within the U.S., but about recognizing the global connections, recognizing the impact of global capitalism, which we haven't really talked about this evening, and I don't know why. I should have brought it up before. <laughs> I always do. Uh, uh, but when Palestinian activists saw the imagery from Ferguson in the summer of 2014, and they recognized the tear gas canisters. They recognized the tear, that the tear gas canisters, canisters were produced by the same company that produced the tear gas that was used by the Israeli military against Palestinians in occupied yeah. Palestine. Something clicked then. And so we became aware, young people became aware that the struggle against police violence is not just around saving people's lives, but it's around, and it is, I mean, fundamentally that is what it is, is about, but it's about acknowledging uh, the, 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 the militarization of police forces, yeah. uh, uh, and that we had to do a lot more than, than demand that these officers be brought to justice. Uh, because if, if being brought to justice simply means to send them to prison, then we're like helping to, you see what I'm saying? So as a result, as a result in part of this connection with Palestine, the uh, popular analyses uh, became so much more complicated and so much uh, more uh, important uh, with respect to the intersectionality of struggles today. But let me just say, let me just say that yeah. I think the work that has been done here around deaths in custody has inspired people all over the world. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Just one, really one thing I would like to ask of all of us. We have a history of knowing that the most magnificent women doing the most magnificent things, the waters have closed over them in history, and it's been our loss, and we've had to go and find those women again. Please let us make sure, however, many, however ordinary you choose to say you are, that is not the way we feel. say this. You know, age is something that I'm very proud of. I am so happy that I'm a survivor and that I can bear witness for all of those who are no longer here. I see myself as representing all of those who didn't make it this far. 
Angela Davis. And we also have to honor you as well, so thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast, part of a series from the WOW Women of the World Festival 2017 at London's Southbank Centre. More of the podcasts from the festival are available via the website.